Uh, welcome to the very first podcast of Cyprus Asking People Things. Today we are going to have uh, Daniel Cullen and he's going to be talking about all things musical theatre lyrics. So if you just want to introduce yourself a little bit, Daniel, and uh, we'll start to get this underway. Yeah, hi, I'm, I'm Dan. Uh, me and Cyprus are working on uh, a show I've written at the moment called uh, Dubbo Championship Wrestling. Uh, it's a musical and I mean, at the moment we're doing uh, the sheet music and we usually, you know, bullshit for the first half an hour. So I think this is a good idea, man. This is like, uh, you know, actually getting something out of all the, all the bants that we've been doing that just have been going out into the ether. It's good. Let's do it. Yeah. So <clears throat> as, as you were saying, we, were talk, we, we shit talk for like a good half an hour before <laughs> every, every little session. And so we just had this idea of like, let's just record it. Let's just record it and put it out there. Some it's gold. It's just too good to waste. <laughs> it <laughs> is, it is. <laughs> so the first thing, I, I, well, I asked you yesterday, literally, before we had this, you know, revolutionary idea that nobody's done before. <laughs> you know, just like where did you learn lyric writing and, you know, your influences, you know, everything from the good, the bad to the ugly? Sure. Uh, yeah, well, I started with like really shitty uni theatre, right? So like I was doing, uh, just sort of got roped into this thing called the 1080 Project where we tried to write a musical in a week and it was, you know, it was garbage. But, you know, people just sort of rope you into doing things at uni. Like I got asked to uh, write, you know, parody lyrics for uh, for the 2015 Jewish review uh, called Sabbath Day Night Fever. <laughs> and it was just... Uh, it was pretty ridiculous. You'd think there'd be a lot of disco in it. I really just crammed as much musical theater as I could down its throat, but it sort of comes back to, you know, we were, you know, we were talking about, uh, good old Stephen Sondheim the other day and about his, uh, you know, the program that Oscar Hammerstein sort of set for him in terms of like, you know, start off with a play, you know, adapt that into a musical then adapt a play that you think is flawed, then adapt something that's not a play, then write your own thing. Like, I, I don't, you know, that's obviously not prescriptive. You don't have to do it that way. But I think, you know, the core of that is just sort of ease your way into writing your, your full tilt boogie original musical, which is like, yeah, so just sort of easing into it. So that that's sort of what I inadvertently did with, you know, the shitty uni stuff and then like, moving into doing a parody Game of Thrones musical and then uh, what we're working on now, which is uh, Dubbo Championship Wrestling, which obviously takes a you know a real-life setting. It's not like set in the fantasy world or anything, but it's, you know, it was a new challenge every time in that this time I'm trying to create characters and their backstory with each other and, you know, obviously original songs and... Uh, yeah, that's basically how I got to this point. And uh, all that sort of student theatre stuff has given me all the pet peeves and crotchets that I complain about to Cyprus every day, like uh, misstressing and yes, having the words sit naturally on the melody and all that sort of thing. 
oh man, if I if I can really like, <laughs> it's very cathartic. This for like me just venting all that sort of all my pet peeves. Like if I could just give an example from like the uni days, we'd be doing like parody lyrics to well-known songs, right? But we'd have like a projector up in the background for a lot of these shows, like with the lyrics so you could follow along. And it's like, it's basically like what you do in opera, except we were speaking in English. (laughs) And it's like, that's how poor the lyric writing on this was, is that it's just like, we just... So was that done ironically or... No, no, no. It's because, like, we were so bad at, like, getting the stresses right that, like, people, like, probably couldn't understand what we were saying without that sort of visual aid. So, obviously, it just sort of telegraphs every joke, like, 10 seconds before it's coming. It's just absolutely shocking. Oh, God. And it's just... I'll give you, like, an example, right? Like, maybe not from the UD days because that... Those scars are still <laughs> too fresh. Still run to, deep, yeah. Like, they make you memorize all these lyrics that you just sort of, you're thinking, really? Guys, this the, these are the lyrics? Okay. But like, because uh, we, were, we were talking about like how, you know, I love misdressing in pop music, but I hate it in musical theater. And I think it yes. sort of comes down to that difference between sort of one's trying to convey information and the other one's, you know, more concerned with just conveying a feeling or an emotion. Yeah, most definitely. Could you uh, give the example of that? Because it was actually quite a good one. Sure. Well, we were talking about um, uh, <laughs> uh, been caught stealing um, where, like, I had no idea what they were saying at the end of the chorus and it just made me like the song more in that, like, once I know all the words to a pop song, I'm, I'm kind of, like, I'm over it. But like, you know, I, I was thinking this morning about like, uh, you know, Pink Floyd's The Wall, right? And this this example might really backfire if you actually know what the lyric is. But I'll give you like the first two lines of the chorus and, you know, you, you see if you can actually tell me what the third line is, right? Because it's like, we don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Okay, you. That's uh, us. <laughs> it's that data in the classroom. Yes. Oh my god. I, okay. This was not planned. All right. This is <laughs> <laughs> like that is that is the exact response I wanted. Something something in the classroom. Right. So <laughs> before that, we don't need no education. Like it sits naturally. The words sit naturally on the melody. Right. Like yes, education. Yes. You say like you know. K is sort of like the dominant syllable in that. And it's sort of in the melody because education. So everyone knows what you're talking about. And the third line is no dark sarcasm in the classroom. But like, I think only people that are like really into Pink Floyd would be able to tell you that because the way it sits on the melody is no dark sarcasm in the class, right? So sarcasm becomes sarcasm and no one knows what you're talking about yeah 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 see what i mean but like it's a great it's still it's a great song and i sort of like it for its weird sort of way that it warps that word but if you try and do that in a musical it's just you know the audience is just like wait what and it takes them like 10 seconds to catch up 
and by then they've missed a bunch of information. Exactly. Uh, that's actually something that uh, Stephen, which I always call him, says, uh, yes. Stephen Sondheim, um, he always, <laughs> a little bit more casual, yep. <laughs> he always uh, has stated, you know, throughout his books, like Finishing the Hat um, and in multiple interviews yep. that, you know, he he's writing a musical for the intent of somebody having a single listening. Yeah. So everything that is within that musical and the lyric writing, there is a semblance of maybe this person's only going to see it once. So they're going to have to get the word plays, um, the the character arcs off of hearing one thing. And, you know, if you miss one word or if something's not stated correctly, it's you can get to, you know, the end of Act 1 or, you know, halfway through Act 2 and think, why, what's, why is this character doing this? I don't get their intention. I yeah. think um, a, a good example of this is actually in the musical of Rent with um, the dog and the character arc of the dog getting murdered and thrown out, <laughs> thrown out of the window. Yeah. Um, and it sort of flies by really quickly. Yeah. And then there's this joke sort of thing in the, in the second act where... Benny gets told that uh, from the person. Oh, I forget the character's name. I'm so shit. I played the show for like 48 times. Thank you, yeah. Angel. <laughs> Angel says to Benny, "I killed your dog," yeah. and he just sort of sits there and like thinks about. It. He's like, "Nah, it's all good. You know, <laughs> I'm fine with that." And you sort of there's this like, well, wait, Angel. Benny had a dog, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it's said so quickly. Yeah, and this, it and, is. and if you don't. If you don't know the story, like I, I played it at the beginning of the year and, you know, I got to fortunately listen to the whole thing like, you know, 40 times. Yeah. So I, I picked up on all the all the arcs, but on one listening, holy shit, like I'm not going to pick up on that. I mean, yeah. it's a great musical in the sense <laughs> of what it represents, but I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, like absolutely. And it also, you know, brings up the fact that, you know, in a musical, like, you know, there's so much other like, you know, things that you're being bombarded with apart from just the words and the melody. Like Absolutely. in that song, it's like, you know, it's quite a wordy song. But at the same time, you've got, you know, Angel in a in a Santa Claus outfit drumming on everything <laughs> that she can reach. And it's just like, okay, I, you're going to have to do that song all over again so I can actually focus on what you're saying. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, Benny. <laughs> like that show is ripe for like the wicked treatment of just like do it from Benny's perspective of just these horrible people that won't leave and just kill his dog and laugh at him. And just like, he's the next alphabet. Trust me. So in saying that, when yeah. you, when you are writing your characters, now that you've written a show that's going to be going on next year, yeah, how do you actually keep uh, your lyric writing character development and their arcs uh, as well as their dialogue and their lyrics um, colloquial while keeping the flow of their arcs and and their development, you know, keeping them saying what they would actually say. And how do you find that challenge when you actually write their lyrics and there's a really good rhyme, but you're like, they are not going to say that. Again, yeah. I bring up uh, <laughs> the, the example of um, Benny and he says, you know, I oh, forget what it is, da-da-da-da-poo-poo-it. 
And it's just like, fuck, Benny wouldn't say poo-poo it. <laughs> yeah, think twice before you poo-poo it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Like, obviously, Rent has had quite a <laughs> quite an impression on you. <laughs> yeah. I imagine it would if you're rehearsing it that many times. Obviously, uh, Cyprus has been, uh, you know, in the pit for the Opera House uh, production of uh, Rent. Was it last year? Uh, beginning of this year. But, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. when you're analysing lyrics, I'm usually doing it for things that I'm doing. So, you know... The prevalent yeah. prevalent examples are um, I'm, I'll probably give a rent, uh, Frank Young Frankenstein and Merrily and your show. <laughs> sure, okay. So um, to your question, what one thing I'd say in terms of like uh, you know character arcs for a start, um, you know it's you know it's pretty sort of cliche, but you know go to um, things like. Don't bother with Joseph Campbell's The Hero of a Thousand Faces. Like, that's where this sort of whole thing about the hero's journey, the bottom myth, that's where we sort of, you know, that's like the the big sort of text for that. It's a very tedious read, just like YouTube Dan Harmon story circle, where it sort of talks about, like, you know, a character starts in a place of comfort, they want something, they go out and seek it, they pay a huge price for it, they return to their place of comfort having changed. That's like your general yeah. sort of formulaic approach to, um, you know, a character's arc. Now, like, other ways that you can sort of chart character development is, you know, and this certainly wasn't true at the start of Dubbo, um, but is, you know, in, in the first or second draft... But, you know, it's something that I've worked at is that, you know, I've sort of charted, you know, made sort of a ladder of the status of each character at the start of the show from high status to low. And by the end of the show, that ladder is basically inverted. So that's another way Mm -hmm. you can sort of see that your characters have actually changed is that have they, you know, people like to see, you know, great, great like really up themselves people brought low and underdogs rise high that sort of thing so that's yeah one way to yeah. do that um but i think your question was mostly about how to keep it the language colloquial right and yeah uh, yeah so basically uh another thing i'd say is that you know i just sort of immerse yourself in the in the world of whatever the subject is that you're writing and hopefully you you choose something that you like so that it doesn't feel like work to immerse yourself in it. Um, yes, of course. For me, yeah. For me, it was like uh, just I would just take out every sort of Aussie slang dictionary um, that I could and just comb through them and just write down the ones that I liked and ones that felt, you know, not unnatural. Like it's mm. sort of... Uh, like you're not going to be having any shrimp on the barbies yeah like it's it's that sort of stuff or how people think we drink foster's beer or like like <laughs> i call it sort of like uh <laughs> it, it's sort of like walking that line between you know believable aussie slang and then you know <laughs> yeah like you said shrimp on the barbie all that sort of stuff like some things that like we just don't say. Um, I, I think the best example is your characterization of Cheryl when Feral she's a Cheryl. wrestler. Feral Cheryl. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like like my mum has a friend Cheryl, and yeah. it's like oh Feral Cheryl. Like I can hear my mum saying it, 
And as I've said to other people, this is the first musical or not just musical but uh, apart from, um, you know, apart from like the Mad Maxes and the castle. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's It's the first bit of modern media that I'm watching that I'm like, yeah, I can actually relate to this living in Australia. (laughs) Like I get it. You know, like I watch and I'm sure it's the same for you. I watch Hamilton I'm like, oh, yeah, I sort of get it, you know. But I also don't in the sense of I get the revolution in America, I get what they're singing about intellectually, but culturally, it's like I can't connect with that. I, I just can't. I haven't grown up in New York, you know. Yeah, it's a very New York show. Like that like it's it's for everyone, but there are like special things that, you know, like even just street references on New York that if you're a New Yorker listening to that show, you're like, Oh yeah, I, I took <laughs> I took that street to like come here tonight. Like that it sort of speaks to you on a like a, a higher sort of level. But uh yeah, that's and we don't sort of get a lot of that in Australia, so that's sort of what I'm uh sort of my mission is just sort of like create Australian alternatives that actually are written for Australians and not just another fucking show about, you know, a a neurotic misunderstood genius on the streets of New York. That's, you know, that doesn't yeah. really connect with the Australian experience to me. Yeah. Anyway. It's like a one, one line, even though you're, yeah, yeah. up in arms about it. <laughs> You know, it's when Rose is talking about uh, what there is to do in Dubbo, and then yep. there's then there's the punchline, not punchline, and then there's the zoo. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> my my mind goes straight to like, yeah, I've been to Dubbo Zoo, and it's yep. like it's it's really good, but it's also like, yeah, it's it's a zoo. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> you know, it's like, uh, yep, you go to Dubbo, you go to the zoo, and yep, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But what a zoo, though! Incredible um, zoo. You could rent a bike, and that's how big yeah. the place is. You have to sort of like rent a vehicle and get around. It's so good. You know, sometimes you'll find a you know a unexploded grenade there, which happened yeah. once. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Look, okay, this this is a like a rabbit hole. I don't want to get into on this, but for like you or anyone who's listening, go look up Malcolm Naden, and uh, he's basically this fugitive that is like this. You know, serial killer that hit what was out his name? Malcolm Naden, and basically I'm, I'm going to do a, a Joe Rogan on this, and I'll just oh yeah, pull that I'll shit just, up, Jamie. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll have to be Joe and Jamie at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right, because yeah, like go on. Yeah, basically, this is a man that hid out in the Dubbo Zoo, the Western Plains Zoo, for like two years. You know. Stealing bananas from the elephants, and like when they finally like caught on to what he was doing, they cut him off. They locked up all the pantries. This is where it gets a bit blue. Uh, he, you know, he decapitates a, like a big Galapagos turtle and sucks its guts out so he can eat. As a sort of statement to them, it's just like fuck you. If you're gonna cut my banana supply off. I'm going to eat your turtle. And it's just like, <laughs> just go read it. It's an incredible, it's sort of like a Valjean Javert type, like, you know, as you can tell, this is this was almost the next musical that I wrote. It's just, it's <laughs> but like they hire this sort of uh, detective to sort of track him down. And it's just, it's an epic. And like, 
I feel that's the reason I sort of chose Dubbo as a as like a place to set this show is that I feel like everyone's got a crazy Dubbo story. That's actually what I was going to ask you as well. Like, why did you choose Dubbo? Because I've been pondering on this question for you know sure. since uh, Joe, <laughs> not Joe Rogan, uh, Joe Acaria, oh, yeah. yes, uh, called me up. Joey. I'm like, why, why Dubbo? What's, what's Dubbo got to do with the the price of cheese? You know. Yeah. Well, look, I have I have family in Dubbo, and like it was originally like a placeholder, like just some place that I knew well to sort of just have as the setting. In the meantime, I was originally intending to like make up a you know a sort of uh, you know rural Australian town. Um, because, you know, I wanted to write a wrestling musical, but I didn't want to have it be a big flashing wrestling company. I wanted it to be, you know, an indie wrestling company that was sort of on its way out. That's sort of what I like is like, you know, high stakes in a small stakes world, like the castle or the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, that sort of thing. So Dubbo was just sort of like a placeholder in the meantime, and it just sort of infected the rest of the show gradually it just sort of got its roots into everything suddenly glenn mcgrath's in the show suddenly <laughs> you know dubbo is like you know written into the lyrics and i'm very lazy with my rewriting once once it's in a lyric and it works i don't <laughs> want to touch it and it's also just such a a great sound it's just so much fun to say dubbo, dubbo. and it's you know it's a small town it, it sort of is like having your cake and eating it too and that it's a small town, but everyone knows it. So it's sort of like, it, and it's not that small for a small town. It, it got a royal visit for God's sake, but it's uh, it's just, you know, I sort of just fell back in love with Dubbo over the course of writing the show and it uh, just a combination of that and just being unwilling to rewrite something that was working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I also um, really enjoy... You've, I feel like you've created a, a, a myth of Dubbo in this show <laughs> because I'm, I'm writing it and doing the orchestrations and I'm like, is this, is this real? <laughs> and it's, it feels so real. Like, you know, it's still real to me, you know. Oh, man, it's so good. <laughs> and then I'm like, uh, like, is there any Dubbo's, like, I, have, I need to look it up, like, look this shit up, Jamie. Is there any Dubbo shit in um, it? Sorry, is there any wrestling stuff in Dubbo? Like, yes. I know your roots come from <laughs> sure. um, growing up loving wrestling, but what is the wrestling scene in Dubbo? Yeah, it's it's not thriving. Um, you could say that, but uh, they they have uh, at the Dubbo RSL. Uh, they have had um, certain like traveling um, wrestling companies, usually from Sydney. Um, come and do a show there and it, and it does well there um and like there's no like specific there is no dubbo championship wrestling that is a you know a made-up wrestling company for the purposes of this show um but yeah like when when wrestling comes to dubbo they it draws a crowd it's it's good but uh yeah it, it sort of tends to thrive more in in sydney we have one in canberra called capital pro wrestling and uh yeah, they're, they're more extreme, but uh, it's uh, <laughs> you should come down and see it sometime. It's uh, there's there's not really like a a Dubbo wrestling scene that I'm aware of. Maybe there's like a maybe there's an underground sort of fight club, <laughs> but uh, that's that's as much as I. But we I don't know talk about, about that. 
Well, look, like when the show got announced, I had so many people messaging me with their particular Dubbo story about like, oh, high school reunions where they all got thrown out of a bowling alley, just all this sort of like these crazy stories. So I wouldn't be surprised if there were if there was like a, a wrestling scene in Dubbo, but I've done a bit of research. I can't find it. So it's a very clandestine if it does exist. Sorry, I've gotten very far away from the original question. But uh, but in saying that, like we've gone through all of this stuff, you yeah. find that this has really helped you find a way into writing the script. And sure. before you actually writing uh, Dubbo Championship Wrestling, when you're actually brewing the new idea after your Game of Thrones parody, what yeah. set you on the course for this particular idea and, and not any others? Because, you know, when you take on a mammoth task like this... Um, you know, you have to be sure about it because yeah. it's thousands of hours. It is. Um, and it's basically, for that reason, I'd say that the best way into writing a musical is just to ask yourself, you know, what are all the things that you like? And then try and cram that into the musical. Because so, basically, for me, it was, you know, oh, I, my favorite movie is Toy Story. My favorite play is As You Like It. I love wrestling. I like Australian stories. Like I said, I like small stakes, you know, like mm. high stakes in a small stakes world type of stories. And, you know, that's a lot of things that I haven't really had to have any creative thoughts there. Um, and I've already got this sort of handful of things that when you sort of try and combine them together, even though like they'll sort of coalesce into something that is original. So, like, that, that's sort of been my approach to, like, finding the way into a story. And same thing with, like, writing characters is that, like, you know, don't be afraid to just, like, start off with very one-dimensional, tropey characters. Mm. And then, you know, just through the process of putting the, them into this story and developing it, they're, they're going to become you know, more like well-developed and more well-rounded as you yes. go. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, like it, but the, the the motto is basically plagiarize and revise. Is that it's just like yeah. stand on giant shoulders, you know, just take the stuff that you like. Once you mix it all together, you know, all, the, all those you know, original parts of it will basically become indistinguishable um, just by virtue of having worked on it and just sort of mixed it all together. Yeah. Yes, by going through the process. Yeah. So <laughs> with that, when you are going actually through this process of, of you know, pushing the proverbial boulder, when you are reaching the roadblocks, how, do you, how have you found that having writing partners and a team around you has helped? Uh, and contrasting that to um, your experience with community theatre. Sure. Well, look, I think there are, like, you know, benefits. There are positives and negatives to, like, any sort of level of theatre. Like, it's not all... It doesn't all get better the more sort of professional you get. Like, I remember with my sort of student days, like, there's, you know, it's sort of like being a guerrilla warrior in that you're, like, a very, you know, small, mobile unit in that, you know, if you want to get a show up, you can sort of just bootstrap it and get it on in, in like a few months, basically. And, mm. you know, you're, you're all sort of in it together. 
you're all sort of inexperienced and it's just like make it happen type thing whereas you know like the more professional you get the bigger the sort of ship becomes and the harder it is to to the turn more cogs, it, you know yeah yeah so like obviously obviously it's great having like people like yourself who are actually experienced uh orchestrators and people like joe and glenn who are like pros and like doing all this stuff they've been doing it for ages and it's just like that makes it the end product so much better but uh but like the, the experience is uh you know it, it's just a lot more waiting which is you know you just got to find a way to take the the positives of whatever level of theater that you're at um, yeah in terms of like you know looking at it as like a boulder to push like it's like it sort of reminds me of uh big magic by elizabeth gilbert and for most of it i was sort of like really rebelling against what I was reading because it's like a lot of it is like she's sort of describing creativity as this sort of, you know, external ethereal sort of thing that might visit you every now and again. You sort of have to like, I, I don't like thinking of it that way, but then it, it got to this point about uh, being a, a trickster versus being a martyr. And right. And she's like sort of talking about how so many like, creatives sort of take this sort of suffering artist approach to it of just like banging their head against a wall and every letter that you write is agonizing and she was describing like yep that's how I've been approaching this one song that I've done like 10 different iterations of for this show and she basically said that you know try and be a trickster about it try and approach it in a more playful way this was this song that was hanging over my head for like years that just like I'd done so many versions of it they all sucked and finally I just sort of got to the point where I was just like walking around my house and just going just you know sort of humming to myself just sort of having a really sort of stupid dumb approach to it and that's what sort of cracked the song um Mm. so it for me it's really about if you if you look at it as a boulder to push it will become that yeah (laughs) if you sort of take a sort of playful approach to it, sort of, uh, you know, sort of harness harness that sort of instinct to procrastinate you know, into something positive, you know, try and, uh, you know, try and think of the, like, take the path of least resistance, basically. Think of whatever it is that uh, is sort of productive and that you can do towards this show that um, sort of feels like something you can do at the time and just do that, like... It's, yes. Uh, yes. You but know. yeah, it sort of just becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Otherwise, if it's just like, oh, this is going to be really hard, it becomes hard. Yes, exactly. You know, you got to you got to sort of uh, be the water in the sense. Yes. <laughs> oh my god, I was <laughs> I was listening to a Bruce Lee interview this morning. He's like, he's man that that guy is like he's a very articulate man. Like, he's, I can see why you guys are writing this show about it. It's just like not only does his sort of movement lend itself to musicality but even his way of talking is very absolutely musical. yeah when you when you read into more of his isms uh you know and his and his words and what he has read it's uh it's really incredible about how uh a, a person not just bruce but we all can individually take something from um something that's so far away from our field of expertise abstract it and then, you know, sort of superimpose it 
onto what we're doing. So he would take, you know, uh, philosophies of the Tao Te Ching and um, yeah. uh, philosophies from his Sifu or his teacher and then philosophies of other Western philosophers uh, such as Plato and Descartes and then extrapolate them and, and incorporate them into his, uh, into his fighting style. But with that, how do you feel like your law degree because you work for the government in trademarks. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel like that's uh, improved or do you feel like there are anything, there's anything in that where you've abstracted it within the law <laughs> degree and apl- actually applied it to writing musicals, you know? Sure. Well, look, I think a law degree sort of, it, it trains you to think in a very specific, like, stay within the lines sort of way. Like, it sort of teaches you to, like, it makes you very, you know, rule-oriented, um, which, you know, maybe maybe has impacted the way I write in that, like, you know, I try to take as much creativity out of the process, at least initially, as possible, you know, like... I try to approach writing a song almost sort of robotically where it's like I'm, you know, if that's why, you know, Sondheim is so great is that he's so like, I don't give a shit about like how clever he is or how you know deep he is, but he, he approaches it in a very matter of fact way Absolutely. and he sort of breaks it down almost like, like it's a puzzle. He's a big sort of puzzle guy. So it's like, you know, if, if you're approaching, you know, sort of like a, you know, a a standard uh, trope of musicals is like the sort of deal with the devil, sort of Faustian song, where the villains having their their moment and sort of tempting the hero into making this sort of selfish decision that's going to ripple out and have effects on the rest of the characters in the show, right? Yeah. So you know, you think of things like Feed Me from Little Shop of Horrors or Poor Unfortunate Souls from The Little Mermaid. Mm. You know, those those sorts of songs you can break down formulaically in terms of a three-act structure where at the start of the song it's no the villain makes an offer and the hero says no then the midpoint where you know the villain makes the same offer in a different sort of way and the the resolve of the hero is sort of weakening and then by the end of the song the the hero agrees and makes this decision that's gonna have you know big ramifications for the rest of the show it's sort of you can it sort of narrows the size of the blank page in a way that you have that sort of formula to start with. And then, you know, basically you can just write down a list of songs that are in that sort of genre or have that same sort of sound that you're going for. Mm. And again, you haven't made any really creative, you haven't had to be too creative at this point, but you have, you know, this whole sort of roadmap already for how to approach the song because, you know, songs in musicals sort of need to you know push the plot forward generally speaking and yeah that that's why you know it's if 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 anything that's what having the law degree has taught me is sort of just like approach it in a very mechanical way but yeah to be honest like i, I don't think you if, if you know what you want to do like i feel like a lot of people finish high school and don't know what they want to do so they go to uni and that's fine but a lot of other people like finish high school and they know in their heart of hearts what they want to do, but they don't feel like the world has given them permission to do it yet. And yes. it's 
it's basically like no one's going to give you permission. You you might eventually come across some sort of self-help that has like, you know, that gives you that sort of kick later on, but you can really just give yourself the permission now. That's what Centrelink and living with your parents is for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I distinctly remember a point when I was uh, in year 10 doing a, my photography course. Yeah. And, you know, writing up, uh, doing the, doing a journalism thing and writing reviews for video games. And I had this intrinsic thought in my mind that I have to, uh, you know, I really want to do this when I'm older. I have to go to uni and get a law degree. And then I built it up so much. I was like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm not going to do it because yeah. it's just so much effort to be a journalist. And then <laughs> I, I look back on it, you know, now with the perspective of having degrees. And I think... Yeah. I could have just started a website for like a couple of hundred dollars a year back then <laughs> and just wrote shit, started yeah. a blog. You know, it was like there was a, the, the mental roadblock was actually coming from uh, myself and not any external factors. Yeah. You know, so it, like I think of that now and, you know, we're doing this and like, I love asking questions for people. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to, let's just do a blog, you know, it'd be fun uh, or whatever the, whatever this is, podcast. Um, you know, so what would you then say to others who are within their day job that they have an enjoyment for but really would like to actually do something that they feel like is a roadblock? Because, you know, as you've said, it's working your job, you have a very high sense of comfortability within the job. Yeah. So yeah. getting out of that, it can seem scary. So what was your path to actually say, well, how I'm going to be able to balance this, um, you know, this passion of mine with still being able to like earn a living to pay off debts that you may have accrued or any of that yeah. stuff, you know? Well, look, first thing I'd say is, you know, what, what's that Shia LaBeouf quote? Oh, yes, just do it. You know? <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> And look, that's a very stupid way of, of saying it, but that's basically what I'm going to say is going to boil down to. I think being scared is, gen. if you're scared, it generally means you're challenging yourself and doing something new. And I think that's a good thing. You know, obviously you won't have that sort of comfort of, you know, just following down a very, you know, a path that's just like, okay, if I do this, I'm basically doing what's expected of me and, you know, that's that's fine. Like everyone will just sort of, life will be sort of easy. But, you know, if, if you, if you, you know, if you have something that you really want to do that's going to need like a big sort of leap of faith on your part, you know, first of all, just adjust your mind to the idea that you're going to be, poor for a little while you know just once you accept that um you know that's you know the rest of it sort of becomes easier like like i like i sort of joked about it before like this is what centrelink and living with your parents is for but like you know there's a lot of cultural shame attached to that and you know whatever like use that just do it and use that shame as sort of like a motivator for you to like get what you're passionate about, get it done, have a sort of I'll show them attitude toward it. Like, you yeah. know, I was, you know, I lived at home till I was like 25 and I 
certainly would never judge anyone for living her and I'm longer than that because it's just sort of like it there are certain like sort of professions that if you're trying to get into it no one's going to pay you for it for a long time and just sort of adjust yourself to that and just I uh, you know follow yeah. your dreams man <laughs> <laughs> I see but I, I joke but I seriously believe that yes yes so we'll, we'll finish it off with um how Stephen, Mr. Stephen Sondheim. Steve-O, yep. Uh, yeah, Steve-O. Uh, breaks down lyric writing and uh, the way he approaches musicals. Less is more. Content dictates form. God is in the de- details. All in the service of clarity. Uh, if you just want to have a moment to speak on those things and how that's actually influenced your process of Dubbo. Yeah, of course. Well... First of all, what is, what is the most, what, not even, what is the most watched, not even YouTube video, just, uh, what is the most watched song on YouTube? Oh, um, Gundam style. Close, very close. It's Baby Shark. 9.3 billion views. How many words are in that thing? 18 words. Baby Shark. Daddy, grandma, mommy, let's go hunt. 18 words, 9.3 billion views. Like, whatever. It's probably not what Stephen Sondheim had in mind when he said less is more. <laughs> but my God, like, the if you can just overcome the instinct to just word vomit and just make your songs very wordy, like, simplicity is so beautiful. And yes, obviously, in the service of, clarity without which you know it all means nothing yes i but it's you know it's also threading that line between being clear and and dull you know you can be very clear and just be very boring Mm. it's about threading that line between clarity and mystery and it sounds very wanky but it's just like you know that's that's what i would what i would say there is that just like Make sure the audience can hear what you're saying. That's <laughs> just a bare, like, minimum. Like, you know, make sure everything fits naturally. Um, have a, you know, have a sense of play about it. Don't think that it's going to be a horrible task. Otherwise, it will become that. And just, you know, have fun with it is basically my my approach to it now. And it's a, it's made, made things a lot more enjoyable and you know what's what's that you know Einstein had this thing called combinatory play where it's basically like he would do his whatever his equations then he'd go and play the violin for a second so just have like use different parts of your brain have a bit of variety about it and you know it it won't feel like work it'll feel like yes you know something that feeds your soul content dictates form what's your take on that um yeah well I would say, you know, often, you know, that, that can really help in terms of, you know, Dubbo, at least like it might have a sort of, you know, rock and roll type feel to it. Very sort of simplistic, um, almost dumb <laughs> lyrics, mm. which suits me because that is basically what I'm capable of and not much else. <laughs> but look, I, I, I think that that he's basically... Um, he's basically nailed it there. Like it's it's hard to sort of like try and add on to the like succinct 
wisdom of Stephen Sondheim. So yes, yeah, content dictates form absolutely. And the last one, and this one sort of eludes me. Um, yeah, God is in the details. <sighs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely the one that's like least clear. I think basically, ironically, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, he, he, he's basically saying that like. You know, his big thing is, you know, just trying to avoid as many roadblocks as you can in getting something onto the page, not judging it, getting it down onto the page, and then, you know, musicals aren't written, they're rewritten. That's the big sort of cliche, you know, phrase that you'll hear. Yes. And it's when you're, like, finally getting to go back and put in those details and making everything sort of consistent with that character or that setting, that's... You know, that's when a show goes from, you know, just merely coherent to something that's actually good. Like, he always gives himself a hard time for that lyric, um, I feel pretty, where where Maria is being much more sort of ver- verbose and articulate than a person of her sort of, you know, that, that character in that sort of social station in life would sort of have, like, mm. but... It, it sort of it it makes sense in that you know those little details when when something just rings false like that you know we're sort of programmed evolutionarily to like think of you know to be very good at detecting falsehood and deception because mm. you know in our sort of caveman brain it's just like oh what, yeah. what is that is it going to kill me <laughs> like so basically when when something when a detail is off in a musical or basically anything it's sort of you know again it takes you out of it and it just it might seem like a little thing but he's absolutely right um god is in the details yeah for sure so this has uh been a really good chat i mean this is the second time sort of we've had this chat just a little bit more detail sure. um yeah so this has been daniel cullen uh talking about his musical Dubbo Championship Wrestling and the rest, which will be on in at the Hayes Theatre uh, April next year. No, April next year? Uh, I well, <laughs> I think it's it's looking like, yeah, around that time next year, it's, it's basically everything is up in the air at the moment, but the plan is to get it on next year. Maybe it'll, uh, it should be on Spotify much before that. We've done a concept album, so... Go check that out. Um, Cyprus, this has been very fun. I'd like to do it again if you're ever keen. It was a good time. Most definitely. All right. Well, that's that's that, everyone. Um, I don't know why I'm going to do another one because, yeah. Anyway, sure. <laughs> peace out. See ya.